Welcome to the corner of Hunter and George. <clears throat> yeah, I've been absent for a while. And, but there's been a purpose to that, sort of. The purpose is... As I came to a conclusion for is aiming for quality over quantity. Wanting to more understand the world from both a Novo-Juanon local perspective and beyond. The other side of it is that <clears throat> this past winter and early spring, I was really tied up with work, and I felt exhausted, and maybe exhausted about everything else, including this podcast. Dare I say podcast production was both getting to be not fun, but if, that, if not that, at least exhausted. I had to rethink where I was going. Well... Happy to say I'm back after I think I've been rejuvenated by watching some great NBA playoffs. Uh, caring only mainly or mainly just about sports banter. Minimize myself on the daily dreads of the world. And just this past week I've had a delightful interview. Stephen Dale was the author of the 2021 book Shift Change, an analysis of post-industrial Hamilton, Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, and all the challenges it's faced. It was great speaking to Stephen, and I hope you can connect with this. I don't think it matters where you live, so it seems all our cities are crumbling and facing challenges like never before. Making that shift from lot of what Ontario was, industrial bases, to the post-industrial, what that's become under our present kind of folksian, he likes using that word a lot when he talks, folksian or Fortean kind of autocracy kind of state where he has complete role of the municipalities. He didn't start that, that was under Mike Harris, but he has certainly implemented it and taken it a few steps further. So, this is what you're going to hear now. It's my interview with Stephen Dale, and I hope you enjoy. So I'll probably maybe refer to later there uh, on a much smaller scale. I feel like Peterborough has some shared identities with Hamilton. Okay. Uh, but um, mainly because of our past with GE. But, uh, right. but uh, I don't know for those, I, I mean, I know people out where I live who, you know, know of Hamilton, maybe even have been there a few times, but would not, would have trouble describing it. Right. And certainly on a Canada-wide or North American or global scale, that would be a struggle, even if they know anything about Hamilton itself. So right. I guess I'll start with how you would describe Hamilton yourself. Well, Hamilton was at one time the steel capital of Canada. 
Uh, mm-hmm. It was the industrial powerhouse of Canada. Um, in the, in the post-war period, post-World War II, um, it had a lot of influence over a lot of, uh, trends in Canadian society, like what would the position of labor unions be in Canada? There was a massive strike at Stelco, um, in 1946, which, um, you know, which brought, uh, increases, uh, to wages and a lot more power to trade unions. So, you know, it was very much when I was growing up there, I, I was born in Hamilton in 1958. Uh, that makes me pretty old now. And uh, I grew up there in the 60s and 70s. And all during that time, it was known as an industrial city. And, um, you know, it's it went through a really tough period of time when Canada started to deindustrialize, it, it, beginning in the 1980s when industry started to move to uh, you know, lower price zones, uh, move to places like Mexico, uh, non-unionized places like, uh, the southern parts of the United States and, and further afield to, to places like China. Um, businesses started to close up and Hamilton became sort of, I guess, the primary Canadian example of, um, you know, post-industrial blight. Uh, you know, very few people wanted to live there. There was a real steep decline in the tax base. Um, the city started to, to crumble in some senses, you know, because there wasn't very much investment in the, in the, in the buildings and the landscape. There wasn't, uh, weren't a lot of taxes going into services downtown and so forth. Um, so what, what happened after that, surprisingly enough, was, um, there was a bit of a renaissance. Uh, that, you know, you could see rumblings of in the, in the 1990s into, you know, the 2000s. It started to flourish. There were a lot of artists moved there because Toronto started to get so incredibly exorbitantly expensive that nobody who wanted to do something creative on a low budget could afford to live there. So a lot of people started moving to Hamilton. So it gathered, uh, it gathered this momentum as an artistic, center um you know as as a bohemian kind of place uh you know and and that identity was alongside you know what remained from hamilton as being a as being an old kind of smoky industrial center um you know where there was a, a lot of poverty and a lot of social problems so uh yeah so i guess the 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 short answer to that question is that hamilton is a place that's gone through series of different identities and it's still in the process of forging what kind of a place it's going to be in the future. Right. Um, And do you see this like kind of um, post-industrial, like almost really uh, rough kind of adjustments they've had to make? Do you see that kind of like Hamilton personifying kind of a lot of other places in Canada or North America? I don't know how much you know about like in a Canada or North American scale, but like yeah. do you see a relation, say, between Hamilton and nearby Buffalo or other places yeah. in Ontario? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I do. Uh, and I think there are you know, really strong parallels. I mean, Buffalo, to some extent, has become a, um, a commuter suburb of New York City. I mean, there are people who actually spend you know, they, uh, they own property in Buffalo. They, they've moved there. 
live there most of the time, work remotely some of the time, and commute for a couple days of the week to Manhattan. So um, yeah. it has that wow. kind of relationship. Uh, you know, that it's the same process that's unfolded as it's gotten incredibly expensive in large, really established cities like New York City or Toronto. Um, you know, there's a, there's a city that was kind of down in the mouth, um, like Hamilton, like, you know, we can find other examples, you know, there's Buffalo, certainly, um, Cleveland, perhaps, um, um, you know, a, a lot of places in the so-called rust belt that all of a sudden people started moving to because you could actually afford to buy a house and you could actually afford to take the time to do something that didn't require you, you know, to have the income of a Bay Street financier or, uh, you know, an oil company executive or whatever, which is just about, you know, you know, who can afford to move to a place like Toronto or New York City now? I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but, you know, you get the idea, right, that there's this amazing social stratification. And if you want to do something creative with your life that requires devoting a lot of time with the expectation that you're not going to get a lot of money for it, uh, then you better find some place to live where, where the, um, where the cost of living will accommodate that. I mean, the problem is that, um, that artists move into a place like Hamilton and they start to create a trend. There's a bit of a wake wave that happens. The place gets to be known as, uh, a place where there's some excitement, where there's, um, you know, sort of a creative buzz going on, going on. And, uh, that attracts the real estate industry. And, uh, you know, the prices, uh, start going up and, um, it becomes an unaffordable place. I mean, this happened, this happened to a really large extent in Hamilton in a way that people didn't expect. Like when I started writing my, book in 2015 it was you know it was a kind of long haul like stop and start mm -hmm. uh, start and stop over a period of I think about seven years but when I first started the book I, I interviewed an urban geographer who studied what real estate markets were doing in urban centers across Canada and, and he said no you know it's it's not going to happen in, in Hamilton that Hamilton's prices are going to remain reasonable well you know that's certainly not the not the case now I mean people who moved in, you know, especially people who are part of a creative community who wanted to, uh, wanted to do something and not be tied to a job they had to stay in because it paid a lot. And, uh, you know, and, and that, that could pay the mortgage or the rent for them. Um, those people in like the 1990s, the early 2000s were buying houses for, for $50,000 or less sometimes. And now a lot of those houses are four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000 or more. In fact, there was very recently, by recently, I mean probably two or three years ago, a study that came out that showed if you use a metric that measures uh, property values in comparison with the income of people who live in a community, um, then Hamilton became the third most expensive place to live in North America. Uh, Los Angeles was first. I can't remember what the second placeholder was. Uh, but Hamilton was this place that when you, when you measure 
um, the property inflation and the current value of houses and current rents against what people who live in that community make for a living. It was the third most unaffordable place in North America. Um, so yeah, so the, so the door is open for a little while. Um, you know, you get artists moving in, you get a lot of uh, old abandoned industrial space. It's really nice to put lofts in or studios or whatever. You get houses in formerly industrial or, you know, working class neighborhoods that are, that are cheap. You can move in, you know, you can make a life, but that door only stays open for a little while. And then the prices, prices come up and, uh, and then it becomes unaffordable for anybody who didn't get in, you know, during that, that, that short period of time. Okay. And one thing, um, that I kind of always am curious about with uh, Hamilton as well, um, like what you're saying about the artists, like, uh, you mentioned, I think of the book, uh, uh like an earlier example being like what happened on Queen West in Toronto. Right. Um, but, uh, I'm also kind of wondering its relation with nearby Burlington and, uh, uh, Oakville and places such as that. If there's some sort of, it, it seems like Hamilton has to pick up a lot of the, uh, like, um, also these, these rising real estate prices, but also kind of challenges it had from its industrial past people like yeah. financially oppressed. And I wonder if you feel like, I don't know if, if it came up at all during you're doing your book, but you feel like there's some sort of invisible kind of gated community between say Burlington and Hamilton or Oakville. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it used to be that when people got uh, a certain degree of financial stability, they would move out from downtown Hamilton to a place like Burlington or, or up to the mountain. Uh, I, I don't think the mountain, which is like this big suburban area uh, above the Hamilton escarpment, I don't think that's quite the same as Burlington. Burlington was always more of a, you know, more of a gold plated kind of community. The income levels are higher there. I think actually, even at one point, people would commute from uh, from Burlington to Toronto. Um, but one of the problems that the downtown of Hamilton has in relation uh, to the suburban communities that surround it is that um, they don't have much of a political voice. And you mentioned that um, there are specific problems to the real urban areas in uh, in Hamilton. Uh, certainly the legacy of industry, which you also mentioned, is mm-hmm. uh, is one of them. It was uh, it was a very polluted place in some places for a while. And, you know, you, um, you really got a challenge to um, ameliorate the, all the damage that was done by, uh, by the heavy industry there. Um, you've also got a situation where when, I mean, there's been suburban flight from Hamilton since the 19, the late 1950s, 1960s and into the seventies. So it's been, you know, the downtown area has been on a decline for a long period of time. And, you know, it really hit a, a terrible uh, new place uh, where when the industry started closing up in the 1980s, when, uh, when the steel industry was in hard times, but not only that, all the other, you know, massive number of manufacturing concerns, most of them branch plants of, of American companies uh, that started to lay off people and uh, in many cl- cases close their doors. 
Um, so, you know, property values fell at that point. And as that was happening, there was a corollary process in Toronto, for instance, where gentrification was happening. And, um, you know, formerly, um, you know, very low income communities like Cabbage Town in Toronto started becoming, you know, hip places to live. And, um, and the people who were pushed out of a lot of neighborhoods, I mean, this is a trend that started in the 80s and went through the 90s and into the 2000s. The people who were being, uh, you know, priced out of the market in Toronto uh, were finding themselves, as Hamilton was on the decline, moving to Hamilton because it was it was one place, you know, where you could afford to live if you didn't have very much money. And... Um, yeah, so, so this was, uh, so this means, you know, that there are special, um, you know, special requirements that a place like Hamilton has. I mean, uh, you know, people, you know, who don't have very much money, uh, you know, rely on, uh, businesses that, uh, that don't charge a lot. Um, you know, and I'm sure that, you know, artists, they're in the same, in the same boat, you know, a lot, a lot of artists don't have very much money at all. And, um, you know, so people who, for whatever reason, find themselves, you know, living, uh, in Hamilton because it's a low rent kind of place, uh, they have their own particular needs from government. Now, at the same time that, um, you know, that all of these, these trends were happening, that there was this segregation that, Poor people were moving into the the downtown of Hamilton and, you know, rich people had moved out to the suburbs. You get this process, this political process of amalgamation where, uh, you know, Hamilton gets amalgamated with the suburban communities surrounding it, like Aldershot and Stony Creek. If you want to do anything as a politician that actually serves the interests of you know, the downtown people who say want a better transit system because they don't own a car. Um, you know, people who want, uh, you know, reasonable social services, uh, people who, you know, want, uh, health services, uh, in the lower city to be adequate to the needs of people who, you know, sometimes people move to, uh, to a place like downtown Hamilton because they have special health needs and, you know, are on disability or something. I mean, all of those needs that people have in the downtown, um, you know, it's really tough to gather the political momentum to have those things done when the politicians who rent, who represent those places, you know, are outnumbered on an amalgamated council by, representatives from the suburbs. So, um, you know, so that's, that's a really difficult situation. I mean, there's one example of when, um, city council in Hamilton, uh, sometime in the early 2000s, or maybe it was in the 2010s. I think it was in the 2010s, actually. Sorry, I'm not terrific with dates, but, um, you know, the council in general, mostly suburban councillors, you know, wanted to, um, wanted to build a massive casino in downtown Hamilton. Now, everybody oh, yes. who lived in downtown Hamilton was really against this, right? Mm-hmm. And especially at that point, a lot of artists had moved in and said, "We, you know, we have something growing here that's, that's organic. We have our community. We have our cafes. 
you know, we don't want all the things that a casino attracts to the downtown, right? So mm-hmm. that maybe gives you some kind of a kind of an idea of the the balance of power and how the interests of people who live in the downtown, you know, in the age of post amalgamation, uh, you know, those those interests are often not served. Right. Uh, and now one thing I like about uh your book is that uh well yeah, there's a lot of uh things we can feel are lost from the industrial ages, some of we've pointed out, and a number of politicians have really played upon that. You could argue that's sort of what Trump did in twenty sixteen. Mm-hmm. Um but you don't really glorify like this uh industrial era either. You you acknowledge what it, some things that was it really benefited Hamilton and we'll, we can get into more of that. But, uh, I think two words you brought, bring up a lot about that is that age was quite, uh, I, I think I kept reading the words dirty and violent. Um, like, right. you know, we're talking like, I don't know, from the forties to the seventies kind of thing. I, I don't know if you can expand upon that or not of anything you learned through doing shift change. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's re- really interesting that, you know, now that, um, there was kind of a concerted, campaign by real estate interests to sell Hamilton as a place to move into. Um, you know, the word that that people who want the place to to develop a lot, uh, to develop the real estate market, the word they use is often gritty. So mm-hmm. that's that's kind of a word that doesn't come with much context. Um, they're, you know, taking um, you know, they're taking a, a concept of uh they're really romanticizing what an industrial city is all about. And I think this is another thing that's happened in industrial cities throughout North America, right? Is that, uh, now that that thing is safely, securely in the past, mm-hmm. you know, the reality of life in an industrial city, um, that, you know, we can now start to think of it in a different way. We can take a revisionist kind of approach to it and, you know, romanticize this nostalgic about how, wow, it was like, all this, uh, this wonderful, quaint, you know, industrial mentality that existed then. Um, but, you know, that's, that really wasn't the reality. I mean, there were a lot of really terrific things about, um, you know, the post-World War II industrial era and actually the pre-World War II industrial era also. I mean, people, a lot of times people who were immigrants from other countries would, would come in, especially during the era of, um, unionization and um and they would um you know be able to find you know good paying jobs and work their way up towards a really good middle class standard of living i mean that was you know it was a much more egalitarian era in that respect uh and that's a very good thing mm-hmm. um you know it was also like i interviewed a guy uh, before he passed away he was in his 90s at the time who remembered the great strike, the Stelco strike of, um, um, the Stelco strike of, uh, 1946. He was actually part of it. He was, uh, he was an organizer. He, uh, he was in charge of the, um, cultural component of the strike where they brought Pete Seeger and various other artists, uh, into, um, into Hamilton to, to buoy the spirits of, of the town and all their multitude of supporters who were, you know, who were, who were lined up along the streets, um, you know, saying like, we gotta, we gotta break the stranglehold that the, that the bosses at Selco have over, 
the lives of people who work in their foundries. Um, so this fellow who I interviewed, whose name eludes me, not only am I not good with dates, I'm not sometimes good with names either. Um, but, uh, you know, he was, um, he was recounting how during the 1960s, for instance, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of working class people moved into positions of, uh, of power on local community, uh, community committees, uh, the parks committee, um, you know, um, the university, McMaster University and Mohawk College that they, that they took a, a really strong role in, um, you know, how institutions in the city would develop, you know, the public libraries, the parks, the educational institutions, um, you know, and, and that's again, like part of this thing that that era was, you know, was very egalitarian. And, uh, and if you were, if you were born into humble circumstances, like you actually had a chance, um, to make things a lot better for, for you and your family and people like you. Uh, so, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the good side. Um, but I mean, I remember growing up there that, um, you know, like there was, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, women, um, had, uh, to a lot, to a large extent, very lesser roles in the social, social order. Uh, you know, it could be like a very homophobic place. Um, you know, it could be a place where, you know, there was that tension, I think, largely because people had to work in, you know, really difficult circumstances in, uh, in hot, dirty factories, um, you know, that were in a way like really inhuman. I mean, I think that spilled over onto the streets that there'd be, uh, there, there'd be a lot of, um, there would be a lot of like random violence, you know, when there were, mm-hmm. um, you know, there were motorcycle gangs, there was, uh, you know, there was organized crime. Um, so, you know, that, that aspect of it, there were, there were a lot of negative aspects to life too. So, so I think that it's a really good idea not to romanticize things, but say there are aspects of that that'd be re- really nice to get back to. And, you know, we should work towards that, but, you know, let's not turn a blind eye to the positive ways in which things have changed since then. And a, a number of people have mentioned to me the fact that, uh, you know, the steel industry is gone now, but, uh, the biggest industry now is the, uh, uh, the biggest industries, I guess, are education. Um, you know, the community college and the university are really big, but more than that, uh, healthcare mm-hmm. and, um, you know, and those are, those are also, uh, unionized, uh, professions. So the unions are still as big an influence in, in Hamilton as they were before. Um, but, you know, for instance, it's, it's much more female workforce. And so, um, you know, you get a, you, um, you get a different perspective when, um, you know, uh, women have, uh, have a, a greater position in society. Than they used to when it was um, simply a blue-collar industrial town, and uh, you know women were expected to take low-paying jobs and uh, uh, and participate a lot less in the decision making. Mm. Yes, uh, yeah, like uh, back to what you're saying about the the past. I mean, one thing that comes to mind if I think of Hamilton is sort of uh, uh, one example. I, I sort of think of Teenage Head, I guess. From nice day for a party. Isn't it? Yeah.
late seventies or early eighties is kind of right. an example of it being kind of, kind of uh, rough and from that, that punk kind of age. Um, yeah. So is the state, is the state of like today's Hamilton, are we talking about, I mean, I was, last time I was there, I think it was around early December of last year. That was just a brief stopover. But uh, are we talking about a lot of like, uh, like abandoned industrial buildings and things like that still uh, just, I guess, a bit outside of the downtown? Uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I think some areas are abandoned. Uh, there's, there's a lot of land that can still be, redeveloped in in hamilton um uh some of it has like i mean there's there's some really quite impressive uh loft developments you know old factories uh Mm -hmm. like the cotton the cotton factory for instance is one that's uh a lot of that studios and so forth and that's been redeveloped um so yeah um you know actually uh tim i want to go back to what you said about uh teenage head and yeah how it exempt it, how it exemplified the city. Yeah. The, the irony is that, uh, uh, that the members of Teenage Head, I think, were all from Westdale, which is a, oh, really? uh, which, which is an upper, upper class, uh, you know, not necessarily upper class, but, but sort of a middle class, mm-hmm. uh, you know, bordering on the professional class kind of place. Um, you know, but, but despite that, I think, I think you're right that they did represent something about the, the spirit of the place and in the, uh, uh, and and in the seventies and eighties, like uh, punk rock was like a really really big thing in Hamilton. Um, but it's it's not the only um, example of uh, you know a, a homegrown kind of artistic milieu. You know, there's been you know there's uh, Hamilton had a symphony uh, for quite a long time. Um, you know, there's there were independent art galleries like uh, uh, Hamilton Artists Co-op, which became Hamilton Artists Inc. Um, you know, was a, a gallery that, uh, you know, always sort of gave, you know, voice to people from all different segments of society. And, and there, and there is like a, the art gallery of Hamilton is a, it's a big institution too. So, uh, so there was always like a great, you know, a great art scene thriving in Hamilton. It didn't have to be transplanted from, uh, from someplace else, but you know what? I've, I've lost the thread of your question. So, so maybe I, we could keep another run at that. that that's all right. So it's, it's kind of more of a discussion than a question. Anyway, I'm kind of forgetting where I was at I, anyway. But I think one thing I'm trying to get, was trying to get at is um, I think you say in your book yourself, one thing that's lost from that, that age of like, you know, from the early 20th century to, I think you said the symbolic end is 2013, but you could argue it was a lot earlier than that of Hamilton's industrial age. Um, mm-hmm. like it's the loss of community and just speaking from a Peterborough perspective, like I know from my own knowledge and research, like when we had GE, which at one time was like one of North America's biggest plants, uh, they would have like workers have like these, like, I don't know, Christmas dinners or whatever, and it would right. fill up our whole hockey arena and they'd have to do it on two or three separate nights. Cause there were so many employees when it was at its peak. And GE mm-hmm. was funding like this baseball team here. It had its own bowling team here, had its own golf team here. Like, and it just a bunch of parks came out of the plant too. And the thing that's kind of lost in today's age, besides I'm saying about community is you don't, um, besides uh, people like, like the money being made out of an actual substance or product, you don't really have much given back to the community from whoever is benefiting from today's economic age. 
Right. Yeah, I think another idea that, that people have raised, raised in that context is that uh, is that you could do those sort of community-oriented things more easily sometimes in the past because uh, economic life was a little more stable. You know, you had better mm-hmm. wages. There's this condition of economic precarity for a lot of people now where, you know, you're just trying to keep your, your head above water in a lot of cases. Um, you know, people... You know, working long hours and um, having high uh, mortgage costs to bear, um, you know, trying to like not having the kind of benefits that come with, uh, you know, perhaps working at Stelco or working at GE in Peterborough. And, um, you know, so you're, you're, you're constantly sort of struggling to, to, to make ends meet. And, uh, you know, whereas before, like when you have a little bit more security, you can, you can actually spend some time contributing to those to those things that make the community a better place. You can, you know, organize events or take part in various things. I mean, that's um, that's that's one point of view, and I think that you know a lot of people get involved in that. Um, the interesting thing is, though, that I think that there is like a legacy in Hamilton. I mean, you know, folks that I talk to have been sort of involved in you know, trying to make Hamilton a more just and fair kind of place. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them, you know, go back to the, you know, to the, um, to the old days. And they said like, because they're um, they've had family members who have had industrial accidents or been laid off for long periods of time, or, you know, that bad things have happened to them as a result of, you know, working, in industry and living in an industrial town, you know, that gives a sense that, you know, they know what it's like to suffer hardships and to be down and want to get back up again. And so that creates an inclination to try to do things that help other people in the community and and get together and find common solutions to that. So, you know, that comes from a lot of people who grew up in Hamilton and stayed there and weathered the transition from an industrial to a post-industrial city. But also I think people who move in from other places are affected by that, that they can, they they can feel that, uh, uh, that they can feel that atmosphere that, you know, that ethics that sort of, you know, is around people are very, people are more inclined to talk to you on the street and on the bus than they are in, you know, down in the financial district in Bay Street in mm-hmm. Toronto. Um, you know, people, uh, you know, there's there's a sense of concern that's actually, you know, people who arrive there and they really like that and they want to they want to be part of that. So, uh, so, so that's actually one of the, I mean, people have accused me in the book of being a bit Pollyanna, like saying that, oh, we can, you know, Hamilton has a lot of problems now. It has a big housing crisis. Uh, you know, it has... You know, there's a lot of people who've been left out, you know, who are who are suffering, um, you know, and and these things aren't easily solved. And, you know, but but I uh, I think in the long term that um, one of the things that that maybe give a little bit of gives a little bit of hope is that uh, that there is this possibility that both, you know, newcomers and old Hamiltonians alike seem to be getting together in a, in a lot of ways and, you know, really want to make their community a, 
a, a better place and maybe try to revive some of that uh, that sense of community that you described as existing, you know, mm-hmm. when, when GE was a big force in Peterborough. Right. And that, but that transition, like, is, I see that as being something very difficult to do in some ways because it's there. You're, yes, again, you're talking about like a lot of abandoned real estate, like most of, and back to Peterborough, but most of its uh, G's plant is not in use now. One part of it is by, it's a nuclear company that has part of it called BWXT, but most Mm -hmm. of it's abandoned buildings and like, and to put it in a nice way, like of a lot of environmental wear and tear on the community from the past there too, that hasn't been cleaned up. And my assumption is Hamilton has some of that as well. It's just, uh, it's, it's like very difficult to like, um, shed it off. And also I think from what I was getting from what you're saying earlier and kind of what I was reading from another book lately uh, I think it's called something like the the city authentic. I think it's by somebody called David Banks. That mm-hmm. some of these cities with these industrial pasts are kind of like that don't have them now, but they try to s- stand out from another city by showing or saying something or adding it to the mythology of the city of what they had before with the mm-hmm. industrial past. Right, so, right. That, that, yeah, there's that, I, kind of, that whole kind of like kind of complex problems there of shifting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I, I think that uh, one of the huge problems that, it, you know, I'm assuming this would exist with the old GE plant in uh, in Peterborough. I, I certainly know it exists with places, uh, you know, heavy industrial places like the, uh, um, like Stelco in Hamilton is that a lot of that land is contaminated. So if you want to look at it for a purpose like uh, housing, for instance, you've got this massive cost of, you know, scraping up all the all the old you know brownfields land all that stuff that's got you know pcbs and lead and all these things in that you don't want to put housing on and fixing that first before you can build anything there i mean there there are like a few actually there is a westinghouse plant um that's now being turned into uh studios and lofts and so forth in in hamilton so a lot of these buildings it's like i, I don't know if you've seen in uh in toronto um the old uh, Gooderum and Warts yep. building in the distillery district. Yep. Yep. Like, I mean, those are, those are beautiful uh, buildings and, mm-hmm. you know, structurally really, really sound, although they do need, um, you know, the engineers to come in and, uh, you know, buttress them with, uh, you know, uh, you know, help, help the foundations stay up mm-hmm. and, and so forth. Uh, but those are, you know, some of those in Hamilton, have been turned into, um, you know, non-industrial facilities now. Um, you know, I think one of the, one of the main, um, issues in Hamilton is not the necessarily the, um, what's happened to the industrial land, but the residential land that's around the industrial areas. Because there are a lot of, um, you know, before, uh, before the post-war period, especially like the 1960s and 70s, when a lot of people who lived downtown uh, moved out to the suburbs, um, the downtown area was where people, the downtown area and also industrial areas in the, in the East end and the North end um, is where people used to live. So you'd have a lot of people, you know, living in uh, modest houses in the shadow of the factories. And um, those are the places that people would move to when that exodus that I described 
from Toronto in the 1980s, where, you know, people who are being forced out because of the uh, booming real estate market in Toronto would find themselves in Hamilton. Um, they'd live in those kind of places, you know, like you'd have a flat or a room in a, um, you know, in a, an old Victorian house in, um, you know, in a working class neighborhood of Hamilton. Uh, and those remain pretty affordable. Or in some cases, um, you know, there would be, say, somebody who had a house in a nice part of town, like around Gage Park. Um, you know, a lot of cases, those houses were owned by, you know, widows of uh, steel workers who had died most likely because of exposure to industrial toxins, um, who would, you know, have a very nice house in, uh, you know, in a downtown area who would, you know, rent rooms out to, uh, uh, to people who, who didn't have a lot of money. And this is the sort of housing stock that, you know, got under pressure when Hamilton in recent times, you know, after Hamilton started to be remade as an artist colony, uh, you know, it saw all these people moving in and people came in and they, they bought the houses as opposed to Toronto where, you know, you couldn't hope to own, you know, a single family Victorian brick dwelling anymore. You still could in Hamilton at a certain point, you know, you could buy one of those for under a hundred thousand dollars. And so that's when a new round of displacement happened, that people who had been living in this housing stock, uh, you know, having been uh, forced out from Toronto or elsewhere or, you know, just finding themselves there because they uh, because they didn't have a lot of money and and uh, needed to live in a frugal kind of way. Uh, these people were being displaced from those houses. And, um, you know, and so that gentrification story is, is replayed once again. Okay, so are you saying? I have, you know, there's quite a bit actually I can relate to what you're saying there because, uh, um, like yeah, till about five ten years ago, Peterborough was probably what like if you really wanted a good deal in real estate on a Canadian scale or Ontario scale, it definitely was uh, the place to go. Like things were like a hundred, two hundred k less even than they were in say Oshawa somewhere like that and uh the long history of like these huge yeah Victorian like or even Georgian kind of buildings that uh are rented out sometimes not legally but long history of that and um uh, yeah and uh we still still do but the, the the long like sort of artistic history so so um when you're saying about the artistic community in Hamilton, have they kind of unknowingly, not inten- unintentionally perhaps, been sort of part of Hamilton's kind of gentrification process that's sort of undergoing? Right. Well, well, that's a central part of my book, actually, is this mm-hmm. whole question of what role did um, what role did artists and people, you know, who are involved in in cultural pursuits play in that in that very process of of displacing other people and you know i don't think you can find an answer to that but i I sort of have my my suspicions that um you know in in order to understand it fully i think we have to look at this uh this notion um that richard florida brought out in his books about uh Mm -hmm. the creative class and um and this idea that uh 
that, you know, there's a group of people who want a certain number of things from the place they live and they can't find it in the suburbs. They can find it in the old industrial cities. These are creative people. Um, they move into these places. Uh, they revitalize them. And it's a happy story after there that, uh, that, that everything that, um, everything that was wrong about a decaying industrial industrial center is made right because you've got, you know, these people with a lot of ideas, vibrancy, and, um, and a lot of money also uh, who come in and, um, you know, raise this place up from a heap of rubble to, you know, a really vibrant and viable place to live for everybody. Um, you know, the interesting thing is that, um, you know, Richard Florida has since, um, abandoned some, some components of that original idea. For one, you know, it's, it's been criticized roundly as being hugely elitist mm-hmm. that, um, you know, there's people who are creative with a capital C and then there's the rest of us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the interesting thing is that a lot of people who are, he defines as being part of the creative class, are not actually artists. They're people who work in, in finance industries or, you know, in, uh, industrial design or, um, in advertising, things, things like that. Uh, you know, a lot of artists, you know, who, um, you know, live very, um, you know, very marginal kind of lives sometimes really find it difficult to relate to this idea of the, of the creative class. So, you know, but I think what's happened in Hamilton is despite the fact that, um, you know, Richard Florida has walked back this idea of the creative class being the savior of old industrial centers. And, um, you know, despite the fact that, uh, that the idea has largely been discredited by, by other people, um, you know, I think it still has a lot of traction on the ground. And, uh, you know, people still really, you know, uh, really take that idea as being the concept that defines what's happening and what should happen in a place like Hamilton. So you've got on the one side, you've got a lot of people saying, wow, this is so fantastic. Let's buy up houses, renovate them, you know, sell them to people who, uh, who make a lot of money in downtown Toronto and you want to commute. And everything's going to be great. And, you know, that's a criticism that's been made of, uh, um, what's happened in a lot of, um, other cities in, in the United States, for instance, like when, um, when the, the terrific environmental disaster hit New Orleans, like after mm-hmm. that, a lot of speculators came in, a lot of people who, you know, the, um, the traditional population there who had lived there for a long time, you know, mostly mostly black people and people of color, um, you know, they they were priced out as you know as the as you know affluent professional people moved in, um, you know, and and there's been a lot of criticism of that that people do that move in and think, well, we're doing such a wonderful thing, we're reviving this community that was moribund, you know, blind to the fact that. You know, in that process where they're moving in, there's a lot of people who get displaced and don't, don't have a place to live and are, um, and are, 
taken away from the communities where they or their families maybe get to live for, for generations. I mean, same thing in Detroit too. There's mm-hmm. um, Detroit was laid waste. And then there's a bunch of people come in um, who, uh, you know, who think, wow, we're doing a great thing here. There was like where there used to be communities uh, you know, there were, you know, now there's just open fields and, and we're coming in and we're restoring something, you know, well, that's, that's, you know, I mean, it's partly true that, uh, um, you know, that there are good things with people with money moving in to a community, which has been deprived for a long time. And I can talk about that in a moment too. Um, you know, but there are also bad things. So, you know, you get people who are looking at it from a very polarized point of view, some people saying, oh, this, you know, this creative class. Yeah, that's a good idea. You know, like, uh, the creative class are going to write, you know, raise the city up again. And then you get other people who see this as being like the ultimate, ultimate patronizing elitist outlook and think, um, this is like a really, really horrible concept and they're, they're against it and anything to do with it. So the, what I documented in Hamilton was, uh, you know, there are sort of, you know, radical fringe groups who identify artists as, as, uh, as being part of this movement, as being part of this, um, uh, this real estate speculation boom and the resulting displacement that happens. And, uh, you know, start with campaigns like, uh, putting stickers on gallery walls saying, you know, you know, uh, gentrifier, um, you know, you know, take care of creative class out of here. Can't remember the exact wording of some of these things. Um, and they think that, uh, you know, like, you know, this, the creative, uh, you know, the artistic community that developed there as people moved in, because you can't afford to be an artist other than in a really low rent district. I mean, that this is uniformly a bad thing. Um, so, you know, somewhere in between there is perhaps the answer, right? Is that, um, is that, uh, you know, artists have been living in downtown Hamilton for a long time. There's been an artistic ferment way before, you know, the current round of gentrification. So, you know, the artists have a right to live there. Um, you know, maybe they have contributed to, you know, giving this big public relations sheen to Hamilton, which is, uh, been exploited by real estate interests who use it to bid the prices up, you know, to astronomical levels, as has been the case in, all, in, in you know, many, many parts of Hamilton. Um, you know, but uh, but there's there's other possibilities too, right? I mean, people, you know, people can get together and they can they can work on things like trying to, uh, um, you know, to to bring a decent component of affordable housing into a city like Hamilton. Um, you know, they can, they can reach across these barriers and, you know, dispense with, uh, you know, a lot of the labels, you know, um, you know, you're a, you're an artist, therefore you're a gentrifier or, you know, you're, you're not part of the creative class. You're, you know, therefore you have nothing to contribute to the community. Uh, I mean, I mean, there are thankfully a lot of people who've gotten beyond the us versus them mentality and try to look at how the community can exist with people cooperating. Right. Well, yeah, I I think to say artists are part of the gentrification, yes, is a high simplification. And to be honest, 
compared maybe say to the 60s or 70s i can think of music as one example but i don't think it's the only one i i don't think i'd want to be trying to make it uh like as a you know an affordable income on my art these days it's very difficult i mean right music's become almost like non-profitable unless you were someone who started making music say before the internet age right uh, it's it's very difficult so and, and um, writing books too let me tell you yeah no i guess no doubt Right. Uh, but so I like what I've really gotten from Richard Florida, bringing him back into it when he's t when he like, I don't know about this elitism. That's a, you know, high subjective term. But when he's talking about like the creative class, well, he's talking about what is what is, what is this creative class? I've always taken it and I'm not the only one to say this uh, It's more of like, yeah, you're talking about people in finance, insurance or real estate. Right. And they're being creative at being ways of like making this passive income or making income off of what's um, speculation in the community and not really giving back at the same time. I think at least that's what some people have had a problem with what what his original work was. Yeah, no, I think um, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and I and I think that distinction between between artists and the creative class is a, is a really important one. Like I, I have a, um, a little passage in my book that I, I quote from Lawrence Ferlinghetti, the, uh, the beat poet of the, uh, of the 1950s and 60s, you know, co-founder of City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, who has this beautiful, um, uh, little passage about how, you know, he arrived in the 60s along with these other, these other dreamers and creators and artists, um, you know, who found that they could, they could find a nice flat and do their work. And, you know, so it was actually the center of a cultural movement, uh, that, you know, you could argue, you know, change the direction and the outlook of the Western world. And he writes about the, um, the setting that gave rise to that and how like Rip Van Winkle is, his fictional character falls asleep, wakes up a few decades later and finds a city that he can't recognize. And there's no place for people like him anymore. It's, um, it's a place that's been essentially poisoned by money. Yeah. So, you know, as an artist, you, you can't function there anymore. Um, you know, you, you can't go buy a coffee that you can afford. You can't find a place to live. And, you know, you're so, you're so busy trying to pay the rent if you decide to stay there um, that that you can't you can't be part of a, a community that you know that concentrates on uh, productive projects, right? So uh, so yeah, so so the artist is in a is in a tough the art the artist is in a tough position. I mean, uh, some of them have stayed there in, in Hamilton. Um, you know, a lot of people. Um, not a lot of people, but some people around the James North area, for instance, which was sort of the epicenter of this cultural renaissance that hit in Hamilton uh, uh, in the uh, in the 90s into the 2000s into the 2010s. Uh, they were there at a time before you could actually get a mortgage for one of those buildings in in the downtown. Like they had to yeah. find creative ways to finance things where people who had owned the buildings before you know, would, would give them kind of rent to own deals hmm. or, you know, just, um, you know, a lot of, the, a lot of those folks got in there, got some real estate, like before anything happened, 
And so they have, they have tenure there and they can continue to do things, you know, which are interesting and, uh, uh, you know, um, that, that don't require, um, servility, uh, to the rules of the marketplace, you know, um, that, um, you know, there's, there's buildings that they bought for a low price that keep them. They're, they're not going to sell them. Uh, so they can, they can keep doing their thing. But unfortunately, you know, that's, that's not the case with, with a lot of, uh, a lot of other people who didn't have the, uh, the element of good timing on their side. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's tough to be an artist to, when the, when real estate prices are too high. Mm-hmm. Well, well, on that topic of gentrification, which is kind of a word that's a lot of people have placing a have trouble placing a specific definition to, I find your, uh, your one reference in the book that really sticks with me. And I, it, I thought it was the best definition of the term I've ever heard. Uh, you're, I think you were quoting Sarah Schulman. I forget mm-hmm. what the name of the book is, but anyway, right. she basically calls gentrification as a concrete replacement process. So right. I, I, right. That that must have yeah that must have hit home with you somehow too when you're, you're yeah I mean books. I mean she she has uh, that's that's actually an amazing book and I can't remember the name uh, oh okay um, uh, it's called the gentrification of the mind okay and, um, you know and and uh, and I do want people to read my book but uh, but I also want them to read Sarah Schulman's book yeah. uh, the gentrification of the mind um, that's that's an amazing book. And, um, she talks about New York City, for instance, and, um, um, you know, she talks about, about disaster being, um, being sort of fodder for speculation. And she's saying that, um, you know, she, she looks, for instance, at, at some of the neighborhoods when in the 1980s where there were, you know, the highest rates of death from AIDS. And she says, it's exactly, these are exactly the areas. If you just sort of like take the one set of figures, superimpose them on, on another, you'll see that those neighborhoods that were devastated by AIDS in the 1980s before there were adequate treatments, um, are exactly the same ones where the property value started to rise, right? So mm. speculators see, you know, there's, there's, um, there's this, there's this disaster that's taken place. It empties out buildings. We move in, you know, we, we gentrify, um, you know, the same thing other people have mentioned. I used the example before of, uh, New Orleans, right. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a physical disaster, you know, you've, uh, you know, the floodwaters move in and, uh, the city is underwater. Many, <clears throat> excuse me, many, many people die. And, um, you know, and that creates like a, a new, um, you know, a new area for people to colonize, right? Um, you know, Detroit, Pittsburgh, same things, you know, as the same thing has happened in Hamilton, you know, with the dying of industry, right? The um, the, the death of a way of life, the, the death of a particular economy. Um, yeah, all of those things that Sarah Schulman po- points out, you know, that's, you got to have that disaster and the, and it gets gentrified and, uh, um, you know, people with, um, you know, in, in, in the cases that she mentioned, and especially New York city, um, people with a different outlook start to move in and, and the place in a sort of fundamental, if you can use the word spiritual way, uh, starts, starts to change. It's, it's 
perhaps physically kind of the same place, but, you know, in more profound ways, not really, not anymore. Hmm. Um, now, since Shift Change came out, which was 2021, I believe, um, have you seen any sort of, uh, like, uh, major changes that have happened in, to Hamilton itself? You know, like, um, still recovering from uh, the pandemic or things as such? Yeah. Um, you know, things have, in many respects, gotten a lot worse. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, as the housing crisis uh, deepens, the affordable housing crisis deepens across Ontario, it's also deepened in Hamilton. Um, so, um, you know, there's been, uh, you know, there's, there's been this, um, ongoing crisis of, of people, you know, living, living in, in parks. Um, you know, there's the, the city of Hamilton, the, the council has changed. There's, uh, a lot more progressive councillors have been, have been elected to council, um, and they've, you know, recently there's been, uh, you know, housing has been to, there's, they've declared a state of emergency in Hamilton over the housing crisis. They've declared a state of emergency over the opioid crisis. Um, you know, there is the idea that if, you know, they bring this like right into the open in the starkest possible terms, um, that, you know, there's a better chance of like dealing with it in a, in a really meaningful way. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of initiatives that were, uh, that were underway before continue. Uh, I mean, there is, you know, federal money available for, uh, for new social housing, um, uh, that's been accessed by a lot of community groups that keeps going. Uh, after a long period of time, the, uh, LRT, uh, in Hamilton is about to get built and that's required demolishing some buildings and mm-hmm. uh, a group called the Hamilton Community Benefits Network has, uh, has been pushing for, uh, a lot of, a lot of those expropriated properties to be turned into affordable housing uh, along, along the route of the, uh, of the LRT, which is, uh, which is, as far as I know, it's about to get started. They're going to, start laying the rails for that sometime soon. Um, but yeah, it's, it's this, uh, this back and forth, the, the, the situation, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of, uh, community groups who are trying to do, you know, their part to institute, um, you know, new plans, uh, to build housing, to, uh, you know, to, to deal with, uh, with the deteriorating situation, but, you know, but it's but there's such a such a crisis underway that you know it's uh it's it's really tough to to uh, to meet that uh that need um i mean i mean they're trying to there's there are attempts to um to stop the eviction of people the so-called renovictions mm-hmm. um and you know and that's essential right as uh you know apartment buildings for instance like uh, get bought up by real estate investment trusts mm-hmm. um you know, there are campaigns to, you know, shame landlords into not renovicting people and, and pushing them out onto the streets. So, uh, you know, it's a struggle. It continues to be a, a big, big struggle. Yeah. Uh, 
And you're someone in, in your book, I mean, it's quite easy to be nothing but dark and dire, even when you wrote it in 2021. Uh, but you do like try to evoke hope for Hamilton in the future. Um, have you found some of that hope, um, a little bit challenged, shall we say, by like the provincial governments kind of, you these are my words, but you could almost say a bit of an autocratic relationship with our municipalities, like uh, like uh, overriding zoning laws, you know, breaking up Peel just on a whim kind of thing, uh, reducing Toronto to 25 councillors. This Bill 23, you could say, is part of that. There's a bunch of other examples, too. But mm-hmm. basically, everything comes down to the province. Municipals, yeah. Municipalities are given all the responsibilities, but of little say. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that I think that's another another big problem that, uh, you know, is really tough to override. Um, I mean, there was a referendum uh, about the Greenbelt in Hamilton where, you know, the uh, there was a very spirited debate and a very, very decisive vote in favor of, you know, not not expanding the urban boundary uh, to eat up farmland. Uh, surrounding the city, because that's one of the beautiful things about Hamilton. It's in a really, you know, wonderful, you know, it has a lot of wonderful natural environment around it. Mm-hmm. And um, people feel really strongly that that's one of the beautiful things about living there is that you can take advantage of the fact that, you know, a short, short way away, there's some really beautiful nature. Um, so, yeah, so that was, that was overridden by the province. Um, yeah. And, and the voice of the people was, you know, very clearly by a massive margin, uh, in favor of not, you know, not tearing up farmland and, you know, selling, uh, chunks of land to, uh, you know, development companies that, that, uh, may not have, but probably did, uh, you know, contribute, uh, uh, to the coffers of certain political parties, uh, one in particular. Um, yeah, it's that's that's a problem, and uh, and and the urban versus suburban problem is a, is a remains a complicating factor. Also, the fact that you know what's good for the city is not necessarily uh, what's going to appeal to uh, to the suburban councillors who who are on the city government. Right, right, and I believe just as a side note, I think not Hamilton, but nearby Grimsby. I think it's. Bill 23 is going to be affected. Uh, that area is going to be affected by Bill 23, I think, uh, led by Steve Pakin's brother there. Uh, oh, proud Hamilton native Steve Pakin, his brother, I think Jeff owns New Horizon, which is a company mm-hmm. developing there. So. Okay. Yeah. No, I hadn't heard that actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, so I guess even that being said, um, sort of when you wrote the book and maybe still how you feel now, what is sort of the, the, the major uh, sources of hope you carry for Hamilton in the future? Yeah. Well, you know, it's always an uphill struggle, mm-hmm. um, you know, but I, I profile a lot of groups that are active in Hamilton. Um, you know, the social planning and research council has done a lot of really great work. Um, you know, the, uh, there's a there's a lot of organizations that work in housing. Like I profile uh, a few of them, like uh, Indwell, uh, for instance, and the um, uh, you know various others. Mm-hmm. 
you know, there is, you know, there are projects underway to, um, you know, to put in a lot of housing. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that, uh, I mean, that's what it comes down to, you know, as far as I can see is that, uh, you know, is it in order for Hamilton to grow and, and remain a, you know, even a semi egalitarian sort of place where, you know, people are not forced to completely move away or forced onto the streets or, you know, forced into life threatening poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in order for that not to happen, there has to be some solution to the housing problem. Uh, I mean, I don't think it's going to happen. The provincial government wants to, uh, increase the amount of housing that's being built. And that's, you know, that's part of it. Um, but I don't think that, you know, just, increasing the number of housing units that are available is going to by itself address the affordability issue. Um, you know, so, um, yeah, so I, I think that, um, I mean, to, uh, to mention another, another book that, uh, you know, dealing specifically, uh, with this topic, which would, which is a really, a really good read that addresses this quite specifically. There's a, a book called The Tenant Class by an economist named Ricardo Trangin. And, um, and, and it deals with this in the Canadian context and, uh, you know, how, you know, a fight back, uh, by community groups, by tenant organizations to, you know, stop the ongoing process of renovations and also initiatives to, you know, um, to create a, a greater supply of, uh, non-market housing i mean that's those are the the two essential things um according to him and according to many other people um that are really uh, you know essential to to having some sort of long-range um solution to to the housing crisis and and making sure that communities can uh can can evolve in a way that's egalitarian mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so i i i I admit I didn't really follow her campaign too much, but I hope uh, I hope Andrea Horvath has some plans along those lines anyway during her term as mayor. But uh, yeah. Uh, well, anyway, thank thank you very much for uh, your time today, Stephen. Uh, that, that was uh, that was quite enjoyable. And uh, yeah, I know it's a little unusual to get questions about a book you wrote a couple of years ago, but I still thought it was quite relevant to today. So. And yeah. admittedly, like I said in my letter, I just finished reading it uh, not too long ago, just uh, kind of March, April kind of thing. Yeah. Well, Tim, I thank you very much for reading the book and for inviting me onto your podcast. And uh, yeah, and I, I've had a lot of fun. It's been uh, it's been really great having this discussion with you. Okay. So thank you very much. Okay.